Thank you, God, for the power, the glory that you've offered to us. You were willing to tear the veil to come down to heaven, from heaven to earth to be close to us. Lord, in this moment, as we get ready to gather around your word, help us to um, honor your presence by our attentiveness. And Lord, make me faithful by what I say. And so if there's anything that I have to say that's of you, may it be taken to heart. And if there's anything that I say that deviates from your will, your best for us, may it be quickly forgotten. And with steadfast love, help us to honor your promises to all of your children. And we pray these things in the glorious name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said, amen. Hey, we are continuing our series of messages called Because I Believe. We're talking about the impact, the difference that faith makes in our lives. And we're trying to bridge the gap between what we say we believe to what we really believe, which is revealed by the way that we live our lives. And our roadmap that we've been using for this journey of faith is the Apostles' Creed. And so we've been talking about that ancient, sacred, beautiful proclamation of the faith uh, that we've been learning those words and discovering not only kind of what they mean historically, but maybe even more importantly, how are they relevant to each and every one of us today. And the creed is broken into three different parts. There's I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And we're in that third section, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And for me, there's a little bit of a danger when we get to this part of the creed that it kind of feels like that this is kind of the catch-all grocery list portion of the creed, that these are all the things that we need to do in order uh, kind of to be a good Christian. It's like, I believe in the Holy Spirit, check. I believe in the universal church, check. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, check. I believe in the resurrection of the body, life everlasting, check, check, check. It is kind of like, almost like the apostles didn't know what to do, you know, with all this other stuff that we should believe. And so they kind of just tacked it on to the end of this. But in reality, What's happening here at the last part of the creed is we are not just given kind of isolated little doctrines that we're supposed to believe. We're actually discovering what God is doing in the world. I believe in the Holy Spirit. In other words, we, we believe that God is here and that God is active and that God is in this community and in the world working in and through us. And when we say we believe in the church, what we're saying is that God's primary mode in history is he's creating this new kind of community a radical kind of community. And in order for that community to be possible, we have to believe in the forgiveness of sins because otherwise a redeemed community couldn't even happen. So we're not just seeing a laundry list of things that we're supposed to believe. We're actually seeing the unfolding of God's plan at work in our lives. But I know the minute that I say, we get to this topic today, um, that I believe in the forgiveness of sins, that's way easier for me to stand up here and say than it is for us to actually do, right? That we can say, I believe in forgiveness and still hold on to a grudge. There's a guy by the name of Michael Paterini, and uh, he's written a book where he talks about some memoirs of when he went uh, kind of on a journey to his ancestral family village out in Italy. And so while he's out there, um, he encounters the true story of this famous woman in the village. And that by this time, she's hunched over from all of the years on her life. 
Uh, she can barely walk, but she can with a little bit of a walking stick or a cane. And every single day, true story, this woman wakes up, goes outside her house, and walks for what's for her the long journey all the way out of town beyond the outskirts to where there is a graveyard, a cemetery for she to go visit. And it takes her hours round trip to do this. And you got to wonder what's the motivation for her to be able to do this. I mean, maybe it's a husband who's no longer sleeping by her side, a soulmate that she desperately misses, and she goes to the cemetery in order to feel close to him and to be able to, to, to still talk to him. Or maybe she's experienced the profound loss of a child. There's nothing more tragic than a small casket. And so maybe she's still grieving that, and she goes to the cemetery in order to be able to, to grieve and to try to have a safe place for her to shed her tears. But she doesn't go to the cemetery for either one of these two reasons. What you find out is that she goes through and hobbles all that way there in order to go to the cemetery, to go to a specific grave of another woman who lived in the village who was her rival, her arch enemy, and every single day, painstakingly, rain or shine, she shows up, goes to that grave, spits on it, turns around, and walks, hobbles all the way back home. And you got to ask yourself, what causes somebody to live with that level of bitterness? What causes somebody to hold on to resentment day in and day out? What causes someone to carry a grudge every single day when you can barely walk, but you're going to carry that grudge? It's almost like it's the reason she's alive. Well, today I want to share with you a story from the Gospels that actually tells us why we fail to forgive. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start reading this story in the 21st verse. And while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of the backdrop because in this story, uh, there's kind of a presenting issue. Peter comes up to Jesus and asks him the question, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Now, I don't think this is purely a hypothetical question for Peter. I don't think he's like, you know, kind of intellectually curious. I wonder how many times you're supposed to forgive somebody. Something's going on in Peter's life, some sort of repeat offender over and over again that's causing him to be able to like, how long do I have to put up with this? How long do I have to keep forgiving? And Jesus is about to shock Peter with his answer because Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. He's like, Lord, how many times should I do this? Seven times? The old rabbi, the rabbinical tradition taught that you only had to forgive someone. It was kind of like three strikes and you're out. You only had to forgive somebody three times. And if they did it more than three times, poof, you could totally go at them. So Peter takes the rabbinical number of three, doubles it, tacks one song for good me measure. And he's kind of feeling good about himself. He's like, Lord, should I forgive them up to seven times? And Jesus is about to tell him that, no, you're not supposed to deliver forgiveness with the precision of an eyedropper. You're supposed to give forgiveness with a fire hose. Let's hear God's message to us. And Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sends a gift me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered him, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. Insert parentheses, sarcastic, right, yeah, you will. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Notice that these are the exact same words that he said to the king before. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. May God bless not only the hearing and the receiving, but also the doing, the putting into the practice of his holy word. Why do we fail to forgive? The first thing that we notice in this story is that we're incredibly forgetful of what the king has done for us. We're forgetful of what the king has done. Let me make sure that you understand the context of what the king has actually done in this story. You'll notice, and if you have your own Bible, it says 10,000 bags of gold. If you have that, circle your own kind of 10,000 there because we need to do some of the finance. We need to do some of the math on this. A bag of gold was roughly the annual salary of a typical worker for their whole life. Their work life was around 25 years back then. It was basically what you could make an entire lifetime. So you get 10,000 bags of gold. You're talking about 250,000 years of an annual income. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how this guy racked up this much debt, which is what I want to know. But what we do know is the size of the debt. So you can't think of this in terms of like some little kind of minor electronic funds transfer where they could pull out PayPal and make this good. No, you have to think of it in terms of more like, you know, the Hobbit movie and the the kind of the hoard of treasure that is for the dragon Smaug. I mean, it's just, it's a ton of coin. It's like, it's like saying, you owe me a bazillion dollars. It's a ridiculous sum of money that he could never, ever, ever pay. And yet he turns around. And in the most extravagant gift of mercy ever, he walks out and forgets like it never happened. When I was in San Antonio, Texas, uh, there was this young couple that got married and they were so vibrant, full of life, enthusiastic. And it was only a couple of years later where their marriage started to fall on difficult times. And they called me and asked if they could come in and if we could talk. 
Given the schedule, they had to come early in the morning, and I noticed out the window that they came in two separate cars. I noticed that each of them were kind of holding their own cup of Starbucks coffee. They probably went to separate Starbucks just to make sure that they didn't see each other. And when they got to my office, they sat down on the couch and one of them sat on like completely one side of the couch. The other one sat completely on the other side of the couch. They made sure they leaned over the opposite way. I mean, it was like the temperature in the room dropped 10 degrees the minute the two of them walked in. It was so frigid cold. And they sat there and they held their coffee. They didn't even acknowledge each other when they came in. They sat down and they looked at me to try to like help to fix what's going on. I mean, this was really early in the morning. They had coffee. I hadn't had my coffee yet. And I'm like, you know what I've been trained to do? I've been trained to help people with techniques. I've been trained to help people communicate more effectively and more assertively. I've been trained to help people listen more attentively. And I knew, I knew in this moment that that wasn't going to cut it here. So I had an idea of something that I had never done in marriage counseling before. And so, and I knew because they had been married at the church, I said, hey, we're going to get up. We're going to take this show on the road. I need you to follow me for a little while. And we went down the hallway. We went around a corner and we went through this little kind of secret hallway that takes you into this sanctuary of the First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio where they had originally gotten married. And I had them sit down on those front steps where they had originally met one another on their wedding day and made their vows to one another. And I just pulled up a chair and sat in front of them and I said, we're just gonna sit here for a while. About five minutes goes by um, and we're, we're just sitting there and they're like, hey, you know, can we, can we talk now? I'm like, nope, we're just sitting here for a while. 10 minutes goes by. I don't know exactly how long, but it was at least 20 minutes, and what started out as frigid and stiff, being in that room, all of a sudden there were cracks in the armor. And I kid you not, after 20 minutes, there was like a single tear running down her cheek. And he noticed. And he reached out his hand. And I said, okay. Now we can talk. So easy to forget, isn't it? So easy to forget the love that brought a couple to that moment. And maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you've forgotten the extravagant nature of the king's love for you and what he's paid for you and for me. Extraordinary, obscene grace. And in a short period of time, we turn around and we just go live our lives the way that we're going to live them. The first reason, according to this story, that we fail to forgive is that we forget we quickly forget what the king has done for us. The second reason we kind of fail to forgive is according to this story that we fixate on what we don't have. 
in the story, uh, he's been forgiven 10,000 bags of gold, which is more than the gross national product of the Middle East at that time. And yet he runs into somebody who owes him like a hundred bucks. And he grabs him by the scruff of the neck. He starts to choke him and he's like, pay what you owe me. And he won't let it go. He's fixated on what should be owed to him, what he feels entitled to. Back in November of 2013, our family went with a group from our church down to Mexico in order to help to build houses for a community in Tecate. That, uh, this was the first time that we had introduced like real poverty to our kids, not just kind of a rundown part of town, but like this kind of poverty with these shacks that could barely uh, stand up, that if, you know, I mean, if the wind was blowing really hard, these houses would fall over. And so we were building these kind of bona fide houses. Here was a place that no running water, most places uh, couldn't afford to have electricity. Most of the neighborhoods didn't have electricity in them. We partnered with a church and we were there for a couple of days. I mean, I mean, you can tell that for, for the next generation, when all the families that we brought there, that they're there and you're like, we're building an outhouse for this family because this is where they go to the bathroom. Like we've got everybody's attention in this moment. After a couple of days in the hot sun and working, we get in the car, our hearts are filled with the prayers and the blessings. I mean, it's, you have to work really hard to go to a place like that, given where we live in the way that we live and not feel incredibly grateful for the unbelievable blessings that we have in life. So we're driving home and our souls, I mean, we're tired, but our souls are filled and we're home 10 minutes before there's this family altercation about who's going to have the pink toothbrush. And it's like, <laughs> party's over. Now, I don't say this to throw my family under the bus. I say this because I know your family's not any different than mine is. And that it doesn't take a whole lot to get fixated on something that you feel like belongs to you or you feel like you're owed or that you ought to have. It wasn't that we had forgotten in that moment. I mean, we were still basking in the glow of what we were experienced. But we became so fixated on that pink toothbrush. I want you to know I wasn't arguing for the pink toothbrush. <laughs> but we were so fixated on that that the wheels came off. But that's the way that we are, right? That we can so focus on what we lack that we no longer see the other people around us as people, but as obstacles to getting what we want or need. And so the first way that we fail to forgive is that we're forgetful. The second way is that we fixate on what we don't have, what we feel like is owed to us. And the third reason that we kind of fail to forgive is we have a flawed view of ourselves. This was a new revelation for me in this story. I've studied this story over the years. I've taught this story over the years. 
But there was something I had never seen before that was so fresh. Bear with me on this. The, one of the key words of this story that repeats over and over again is the word fellow servant. It's actually a, a Greek word that's made up of two Greek words. It's sundoulos. It means like to be a slave or a servant with. It's someone that you're a peer to. It's a, um, it's, it's, you're, you're in this together, a fellow servant. And what's interesting to me is that the king in this story doesn't behave like a king. He empties himself to become like the fellow servant. And yet the fellow servant in this story, when he runs into the other servant, he doesn't treat him as a peer or as another servant. He tries to shove him a few more steps down the ladder and he treats him not as a fellow servant, but as a prisoner. So don't miss the irony. The king is willing to go bankrupt to become a servant, and the servant is doing everything he can to pretend to be a king. Do you see it? And that's not just the root of unforgiveness. That's the root of all of our sinfulness is that we want to be in charge. We want to be our own gods. We want to be the king. I imagine in your own life that you can think of somebody right now like the guy in this story that you've put in a little emotional prison of your own design. Can you think of a coworker Maybe someone who lives in your neighborhood, someone at your school, a sibling, a parent, a child, a friend. Do you keep somebody under lock and key right now in your own little spiritual, emotional prison where you're kind of pretending that you're the king, you're in charge, you're in there, and I get to keep you in there? As an act of worship, would you consider right now in your own heart, just letting that person out of your jail, realizing what the king has done for you, and how dare we hold someone in those prisons, trying to be a king of them when in reality there's only one king, and we're just a fellow servant. It's a true story uh, that took place several years ago in Madrid, Spain. And there was a father and a son, and we don't know exactly what caused the estrangement. We don't know uh, where the argument came from, but we know that the result of the argument or whatever had happened was that some words were exchanged, and the son looked at his father, and he said, I'm out of here. And he looked and said over his shoulder, and I'm never coming back. And he left. A couple of days went by, and the gravity of that situation sunk in for the father. And he was heartbroken, and he wished he could take back what he said. He wished he could fix the situation and repair the relationship. But the reality was is that he had no way now of getting in touch with his son. 
But an idea came to him, and he went to the local newspaper, the Madrid newspaper at the time was called the Liberal, and he paid for an ad, and an ad in the newspaper that said, Dear Paco, which was the son's name, Dear Paco, I'm sorry, all is forgiven. Meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. Welcome home. Love, Papa. Put in the ad. Had to wait a couple of days. Had no idea if his son would see the ad or if he would possibly respond. And when he came around the corner and he saw the little area in front of the Hotel Montana, he stopped in his tracks. Not because his son was there, but because there were over 800 sons named Paco. Paco's a pretty common name in Spain. 800 sons longing, waiting to be reconciled with their father. As harsh as the last part of this parable is, where Jesus picks up on a theme that the greatest indication of someone who can receive forgiveness is someone who shares forgiveness and gives it. Jesus moves from the language of God being king to God being the heavenly father. And he longs to welcome you home. All is forgiven. Come back. And the question is, how will we respond? Or are we too forgetful and too fixated and too flawed in our understanding and seeing of people around us to be able to respond to that invitation? You know, it's easy to laugh at that story I told at the beginning of the old lady walking to the grave, spitting on the grave, and walking back and going back to where she was. It's easy to laugh in a moment like that. And we kind of think secretly in our heads, like, who would do something like that? But you know the answer, right? In our own way? Maybe a little more subtle, a little more sophisticated. But we all do that. You know, the Bible tells us that when Jesus was carrying his cross through the streets of Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world, for yours and for mine, that we might be forgiven and freed, that as he carried the cross, that he wasn't just beaten, that he wasn't just tortured, that he wasn't just taunted. You know what else they did? They spat at him right in the face. And the Bible says that we were there, not physically there, but theologically there, spiritually there, that we all have the capacity to behave that way towards God and to our brothers and sisters around us. So don't think that you're any better than that old lady in that small Italian village. 
but also don't think that you're any less than a Spanish boy named Paco, whose eternal father put out an ad of forgiveness and said, welcome home. Let's pray. Gracious God, we apologize. We're incredibly hypocritical that we want to receive your extravagant mercy and grace, and yet how unwilling we are to give that and share that with others. And Father, I'm mindful that even as I talk about that out loud, that it just sounds so easy to say and it's so very hard to do. And so by your spirit, will you empower us to be a forgiving people? Help us not to forget. Help us to focus on you instead of being fixated on what we don't have. And help us to stop trying to be the king when there's only one king of all. Lord, I imagine there's people here whose marriages are in the same place of that couple back in San Antonio. They're virtually sitting on opposite sides of the couch or the pew and they're nursing their own grudges like they hold a cup of coffee. And in this holy place, this sanctuary, Will you expose some of the cracks in the armor and start to repair the damage? I also imagine, God, that there's families in this room that are caught up in the cycle of consumerism and feels like it's never enough. That we're absolutely obsessed by what we don't have. Even though why we're surrounded by so much. Lord, teach us to be a forgiven and forgiving people, to be grateful and to fall on our knees before you as the one true King.